We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Taipei-based reporter Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. Good to be here again. Tonight, we'll be discussing a mighty mess over Typhoon Day closures, concern about Chinese cyber influence ahead of November's elections, a cabinet reshuffle, the departure of a deputy minister over an MRT leg photo incident, and Taiwan's highest peak being officially a wee bit higher. And we'll begin with the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office this week, though, indicting former President Ma Ying-jeou on charges of breach of trust and of violating the Securities and Exchange Act. The indictment is related to what prosecutors say was his involvement in the disposal of assets owned by the KMT. The former chairman and manager of the KMT-owned Central Investment Corporation have also been indicted on the same charges. And according to prosecutors, the indictment covers the KMT's disposal of the Hua Sha Investment Holdings Company China Television, the Central Motion Picture Company, the Broadcasting Corporation of China and the old KMT headquarters building in Taipei. And all those sales occurred when Ma served as KMT chairman. Prosecutors argue that Ma approved a financial scheme that enabled the party to sell its media companies and other assets for less than their market values. Now the KMT has slammed the indictment and it's denying any wrongdoing and also President Ma Ying-jeou or the former President Ma Ying-jeou is also denying any wrongdoing and he's going so far as to say that the charges are politically motivated. But Chief Prosecutor Chen Jiaxiao is dismissing the claims of any political interference and he says that his office is aware that the case would be politically charged and he said that he carefully reviewed all the evidence before handing down the indictments. So, Ralph, yet another indictment for a former head of state. Yeah, yet another indictment against the same former head of state. This is the second time I'm aware of that he's been brought up on charges of something... And it's not surprising, given that he was the party chairman for quite some time. He wanted to do it, and if they're going to go after the party, you got to go after the people who were running it. So this is all kind of, to me, it's just standard playbook stuff. And, of course, he's, uh, he's got a legal background, so he can contest it, appeal it, say what he needs to say, and um, I would expect this thing to go on for quite a while. Mm, I think that's right. Um, it's not surprising that if the DPP is pursuing uh, targeting the KMT's party assets, it should go after Ma ying at some point, since, you know, he was chair of the KMT. Um, Ma is not the first president to face charges after his off- term of, in office. Uh, Ma also has charges going back all the way to Taipei mayor, um, which is also not just particular to Ma of the former mayor, Taipei mayors that become president. Um, so I think the DPP is treading some delicate territory here. It can't pursue charges too much against Ma, uh, otherwise it will have the accusation of political persecution. But it has to do something with regards to the party assets probe, because Ma was chair during the, all those years. Um, and so if you really want to go after the party assets, then you also have to address Ma Ying-jeou's role in that. My question, though, is the, the, the indictment says that the party disposed of these assets at less than their market value. Now... The party, surely, it's a que- I play the devil's advocate, but surely the, the party owned them, so the mm. party should theoretically be able to sell them at any rate that it wants to. Mm. I think the, the issue is the accusation that the attempts were made to pass on the party assets to KMT party supporters, um, selling them at less than market value so that they would be technically private, and in the event of a possible party assets probe from the DPP or any succeeding administration, then now 
these assets have been disposed of. They can't be claimed as party assets because they're now in private hands. I mean, the same uh, uh, charges were made against Alex Tsai, for example, who is implicated in some of these uh, these same organizations, uh, sorry, same companies. Yeah, I, as we all probably know, the KMT used to be, maybe it still is, but it used to be the wealthiest party in the world. If I remember my, my stats correctly, and perhaps I don't, but it's not surprising that given it's been around for 100 years in some incarnation or another that it would have accumulated a lot of stuff and found some clever ways to get rid of things. Um, and I do recall the KMT having said in the past that they've disposed of everything, the case should be closed. Um, obviously, that's not the only view, and it's uh, perhaps not going to be the prosecutor's view, so the case keeps going on. Uh, however, if the assets have been turned into something else, if they've morphed into somebody else's private property, or been allocated and liquidated in some other way, that it's going to be a really tough thing to prove. Hmm. Yeah. Um, as a result, the question is now how far exactly the party assets probe will go, because mind you, is about as high up as it gets as the former president and party chair. Um, he is often a natural target for for the party assets probe because of that. Uh, but I think the DPP still has some issues. I mean, they tried to go after Alak Tsai, and I think uh, that's still ongoing. Yet, there could be backlash from the public if other high-profile KMT members become implicated in this. Which, of course, as leaders of the KMT, it would be natural if, even under for the party assets probe. Um, but we'll have to see. And obviously the chief prosecutor has argued that it's, the, the indictment wasn't political. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, do you think it could have been, obviously, maybe tying when the president didn't ring the prosecutor's office and say, hey, can you charge him? She definitely didn't do that. But do you think if maybe... Eric Jew had won the last election, we would mm. be seeing this case go forward. Because obviously, the, mm. maybe one could argue that the prosecutor's office is trying to please those in power. It's hard to say. I think it's very uh, hard to say as to how much exactly the legal system is influenced by the current government power. Um, but in general, my own view is that sometimes rule of law doesn't actually seem to exist in Taiwan, that uh, the law sometimes bends in favor of whoever's in power. Um, whether on its own accord or of direct influence is hard to say, but uh, something would have happened, I think. And Ralph, I mean, do you, do you see this taking years and years to go forward? Yeah, I agree with what you just said, which is that it's um, it's hard to tell whether leaders, the heads of state and people below them are influencing the legal process that could be, um, if they are, it's rather opaque and we can't see it. As you probably remember, uh, Chen Shabian accused um, the KMT government of the same thing when he was being brought up on charges and eventually convicted. So this, the idea of, uh, of a collusion between two branches of government is nothing new, and as far as I know, it hasn't been any better proven now than it was before. Uh, I think it'll take a long time because of the nature of these party assets and the fact that the KMT has known for many, many years that they're, um, they're, they're under scrutiny and it's not popular, so they've probably done as much as they think they need to do to protect themselves and if they need to do more then they'll do that which hmm. all takes time i think there are provisions usually for uh presidents or high profile figures facing the situation to not really face jail time um so i think my might end up up for the fine but not actually face jail time unless he decides to go into jail as a sort of political stunt which is also possible um but i also think that it will take some time just as the party house issue is not going to be settled today or tomorrow but has been an issue for years and years and will probably continue to be. And, of course, this could put a damper on his running for re-election again. <laughs> yeah, that was an odd uh, claim by the uh, South China Morning Post, if I recall correctly, since uh, presidents can't run for third terms, or if if, if president tried, that'd be a constitutional issue that'd become quite large. <laughs>
Yeah, I understood that Wu Duni wanted to run for the next presidential election, so that it would is, take him out of the running. Um, yeah, they have a question as to who is going to be the next candidate, and they only have so many heavyweights right now. Well, of course, do you think this could put a damper on people voting for the KMT ahead of November's local elections? I think if the KMT is smart, they will actually leverage on the accusation of political persecution. That is something that has a lot of uh, weight in Taiwan because of Taiwan's post-authoritarian history, even when it is the former authoritarian party that's making these claims. Um, you saw it with, the, for example, the new party members that were uh, detained on charge of spying, that they, they, because they leveraged this charge of political persecution against the DPP. They got a lot of mileage out of that, and in a way that's actually quite surprising. Yeah, I was just... Um my sense is that the voters have priced in whatever they think about KMT party assets from, from many, many years ago. And if, they, if that's a factor in their voting decision, they've probably already decided how to vote in response to it. And in other words, they probably won't re-re-reconsider their votes this year because of some new event or new development in the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems right. Um, it does seem to divide, divide between uh, Pan Green and Pan Blue with regards to whether they care about the party assets issue or not. Right, moving on, and a typhoon called Maria skirted the north coast of Taiwan this week, and it left a rather messy situation concerning when to call a typhoon day, which of course is not the first time we've had messy situations about when local governments can call typhoon days. Now, the new Taipei city government is defending its decision to declare a typhoon day on Wednesday, while Jilung followed Taipei in not closing offices and schools. Now, believe it or not, it was the first time in six years that Taipei, New Taipei City and Jilung had not made made the same decision on whether to close well schools and offices on a typhoon day. Now, Deputy New Taipei Mayor Liu Li Shu Chuan said that weather conditions in some districts of the city met with the requirements for a cancellation, and there was also concern that some areas could be hit by strong winds, while others could be inundated with heavy rain. However, the decision to close schools and offices has been criticised by Jilung Mayor Lin Yo-Jung, who said that the move was political due to concerns that New Taipei City Mayor Eric Ju could have come under fire for not actually being in the country when the storm hit. Ju was, in fact, in Singapore, and he returned to Taiwan the evening, basically, of the storm, and he denied charges that decision was political, which is not surprising, really. Now, the mixed calls, sadly, led to confusion among many residents of the greater Taipei area as to whether they should go to work or not, and local labour authorities were forced to clarify the issue, saying simply that employees can take a typhoon day as long as one of either of their place of residence, their place of work, or their place of their commute has called typhoon closures. Well, confusion again, Brian, but this was big confusion because <laughs> nobody really knew what to do. It is uh, surprising because this consensus has lasted since uh, 2012, and it was originally advanced by uh, Ha Long Bing when he was mayor. And I think that points to some of the disarray right now between the different political groups that have control of Dilong, New Taipei City, and Taipei. Um, the accusation is that is often heard is that Eric Chu broke from president and went ahead and declared a typhoon day, but knowing that this would politically benefit him, and that this would look bad for Koenji. Um, who is now in an uncomfortable position with regards to both the Pan Blue and the Pan Green camps. And so you had people, you had an Apple Daily article which cited uh, netizens as calling on Eric True to run for president again because of this and things like that. Uh, it did play well with the, some members of the public that are happy to have the day off. And in the meantime, I think uh, Ko was criticized by some for not giving people a day off. Um, it is interesting, though, that the DVP, despite having poor relations with Ko as well, did go ahead and maintain this consensus, whereas Eric Chu broke from it, despite the fact that this consensus originated under a KMT mayor. I was actually um, pretty 
surprised by the decision because I'm for the last few years I remember that almost every typhoon that even might hit northern Taiwan would prompt cancellations throughout the northern cities and counties, even if there was no particularly compelling meteorological proof. Um, that's slightly cynical, but you can look back at some of the records and see which typhoons that make it and which ones don't. Um, and I think it's, I would have to say Taipei made a pretty smart decision. They didn't really, nothing happened here. He got up on Wednesday morning and, you know, all's well, really. It's raining. That's it. Uh, Xinbei, as you pointed out, is, is different. There are some parts of that city. It's a vast city. There are places like Fulong and the north coast. They're going to get hit harder than, than, than central Taipei is. The other problem with Xinbei is it's got places like Banjiao and Yonghe and all that, which are basically Taipei, and they don't have as, any more storm damage than we do in town. Um, the confusion is only because it's all one big melded city, and if you, you live in Banjiao and commute into Taipei and vice versa, so what do you do? Um, perhaps the only error was not making that more clear via the local media, TV, the websites, uh, you know, the two cities probably should talk to each other and figure that out. Of course, there was also the timing of the call, mm-hmm. Ryan. Um, that's right, yeah, because the accusation was that New Taipei City went ahead and uh, did this unilaterally without consulting with the other two cities. Um, basically, I think it just does point to the complexity of governance in Taiwan that basically you can consider also reacting a megalopolis, um, one city, yet divided between three different governances and currently controlled by three different political forces. Um, the independent Koenja and a DPP mayor and a, a KMT mayor. Uh, it, does raise, it does raise questions as to future coordination going forward. How will people handle typhoons in these three cities, uh, between these city governments? And of course, there was allegations that Eric Ju did it to help out that's right. Ding Shoujong, of course, who's yes, running yes. Uh, in Taipei. That's right. There are accusations that uh, Eric Ju did this to help out Ding Shoujong. Um, there are also accusations that this is revenge for uh, Ho Yoi. Uh, his his dorm scandal with uh, a dorm building that he owns, which is currently be, being used as student dorming by Chinese Cultural University, even though this may even be in defen- uh, defiance of uh, uh, city code and planning. Um, and the, the dorm is in Taipei City, although he is running for mayor of New Taipei City. Um, so this is this is rumored to be political retribution against Koenja. This is another issue in which Koenja is accused of possibly adding, giving pressure to the, the Pan Blue camp or even attacking the Pan Blue camp. And, of course, Ralph, businesses. What do you think business owners thought of this confusing call? Oh, generally, business owners don't want the typhoon holidays. All their workers go away, um, and, <laughs> and they, they just lose productivity all of a sudden. I'm sure the, the good ones have figured out that this happens every year, and they have a, a scheme to work around it. Um, my sense also is that business owners probably just have a, a quiet understanding with their staff that even if it's a typhoon holiday... Some people will come in anyway if it's, if it's not raging, howling winds. Some will work from home. Some will work the next day. They'll work, probably working tomorrow, even though they shouldn't. There's all these things that happen under the table that um, will allow some businesses, especially smaller private ones, to just work it out among themselves. Mm, that's right. Um, there's actually labor demonstrations uh, by... A, that was a department store. That's right, workers. a department store workers union uh, that had a demonstration in the Pacific Soho by Zhongxiao um, regarding the fact that they are made to work uh, during typhoon days in spite of the fact that it could be dangerous to them and uh, workers that don't actually make it can be docked pay from 3,000 NT to 10,000 NT, uh, which is quite high, and it probably is legally questionable. Um, so people have tried to raise that issue. I think with the, 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 the bigger companies, if you're headquartered in Taipei, 
in the city somewhere, like the financial companies and so forth, it was probably a really good thing for them to just keep keep everything moving for another day. Otherwise, it's just it's disruptive. And you look out the window, and there's no typhoon. It's raining a little bit. And then they wonder why did the mayor and everybody else involved declare a holiday when there's no objective cause outside your window to declare one. That's true, because the stock exchange, Brian, as well. Mm, that's right. Yeah, I think... Uh the issue is, yeah, definitely just how does it actually affect you and in terms of commute and what kind of industry are you do you work in? Um, yeah. Because, of course, the stock exchange has to close on a typhoon mm, day. Exactly. Maybe Mayor yeah. Kerr didn't think that was a good idea. Mm, I think so, yeah. That would make sense in terms of uh, the economy. Although there's talk about how to handle how Taiwan's stock exchange coordinates with the rest of the world very often. Um, and anyway, we'll move along from a, one typhoon to a different type of typhoon, this being a political typhoon involving the cabinet, because we saw a partial cabinet reshuffle this Thursday after government officials had spent the past three days denying it was going to happen or even avoiding questions about the move. Now the reshuffle sees Interior Minister Ye Juen Rong, Minister of Justice Cho Tai San, Transport Minister He Chen Dan and Finance Minister Xu Yu Zhe all replaced. Now cabinet spokesman Xu Guo Yong will take over as Interior Minister, Investigation Bureau Director General Tsai Ching Sheng has been appointed Justice Minister, while Taiwan International Ports Corporation Chairman Wu Hong Mo has been promoted to the post of Transport Minister and Deputy Finance Minister Su Jen Rong, well, he'll take over as the head of the ministry. Now, current Interior Minister Ye Jun Rong has been appointed Education Minister, which was probably the biggest move of the lot. We'll get to that in a minute. And DPP lawmaker at large Kolos Yataka has been promoted to the post of Cabinet spokesperson. Now, reports had initially said that current Minister of Justice Cho Tai San could be appointed Presidential Office Deputy Secretary General. However, the Presidential Office has since said that Cho has been appointed to a member of the National Security Council. Now, the KMT has slammed the cabinet reshuffle, saying that it's only aimed at helping the DPP win more seats in the upcoming November local elections and ignores ongoing problems affecting Taiwan. So, Brian, what did you take away from the cabinet reshuffle and what names popped out there to you? Mm. I think it is very interesting because I do think the DPP is trying to avoid scandal now. It also shows which issues that it is devoting more attention to. Uh, the fact that the former Ministry, Minister of the Interior is now the uh, you know heading up the Ministry of Education, that is an unusual move. And it shows that the NTU scandal is actually quite large. Uh, it's an issue the DPP thinks that it needs to address having... Uh, already lost one Minister of Education and then another to the scandal. And it is something that KMT has leveraged on. And again, appointing a former Ministry of the, Minister of the Interior to this position probably indicates that it is viewed as something that needs attention to resolve. Um, on the other hand, I think that uh, you, you do see some of the kind of usual lines of promotions with uh, spokespersons promoted to ministers and a legislator moving up to spokesperson. Um, I think the Ministry of the Interior is the, is the, the biggest one, but also Chiu Tai-san has made controversial statements in the past regarding, for example, marriage equality for one. And I wonder if that trying to move him out of the public eye is also intended to perhaps win back marriage equality supporters. Um, that is hard to say. Well, my comments are going to be short and um, far less intelligent than Brian's. <laughs> oh, come on. I simply don't put much faith in these cabinet reshuffles. And as a reporter here, we... we well, writing for the foreign media, we tend to pay attention to foreign minist- new foreign ministers, uh, mainland affairs council heads, premiers, uh, ministers of the e- Ministry of Economic Affairs changes, and this is the few that we watch. And I didn't see anything in this latest reshuffle that really jumped out of me at all, so hence my lack of an intelligent comment. Um, also, reshuffles over the years, regardless of who's president, they're really common. 
I, you know, I, it seems to me there's at least one a year, uh, some bigger than others. I would say it's the government. Hey, guys, it's the government. It's going to be political. You know, get used to it. It's the way they work. So that's that. Well, of course, Brian, you were talking about, yeah, Juan Rong, and of course, he has been promoted to education minister now, but he went to the National Taiwan University for both his bachelor's and master's degrees. I think he might have got I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of uh, And he also taught there. He also taught law there, which means maybe mm-hmm. the government thought, "Oh, we'll give we'll give we'll give the National Taiwan University someone who went there and taught there." Mm. I think that's right. But I think also just such a large part of uh, you know, perhaps this points to Taiwanese official culture there's so many so many members of the government that uh, came from elite universities such as National Taiwan University or served as academics before they entered government. Um, you know, the past premier Ling Chen was uh, mostly known as an academic then he suddenly became premier. Um, so there's this kind of pattern of moving back and forth. Uh, it is a good choice, obviously, if you want to address the NTU issue, to have someone that is from NTU to handle that. Um, but also, I, I think it's a little unusual. Somebody even see this as kind of a, a downgrading for his uh, status. Um, it does seem un- an unusual shift. Do you see this helping the elections or not? It's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. It really depends on if the DPP is actually able to address this. I think it, it does show that the DPP is concerned about issues that Taiwanese civil society is still paying attention to. For example, another one that jumped out to me was that the head of the sports administration was replaced, Ling Fu, who is a KMT legislator and is known for his, uh, his, his, his sharp remarks sometimes. And he is seen as corrupt, uh, particularly by the push by young athletes for reform of sporting institutions in Taiwan and how they you know, have a stranglehold on uh, young athletes developing and manage to have the resources they need to go abroad and so forth. But and that is, it is somewhat unusual to remove a fairly senior KMT legislator from this. It seems like a, a p- big move for the Thai administration that might ruffle the KMT's feathers. Um, but it shows that they are paying attention to this demand for sports reform, which has been taken up, for example, by the New Power Party significantly as a leverage point. And Ralph, obviously, you, obviously you're saying you watch the big three, those being the foreign minister, the mainland affairs council minister, and the economics minister. I mean, do you see them being changed in the near future, or do you think they'll stay in the ones they have now will remain in office until after the elections? Right. Well, just to clarify, we watch those only because of the, the line of work career, not because they're more significant organically than anybody else. Uh, do I think that they will change? No, because they just did. The, uh, I think it was even er- earlier earlier this year that the foreign minister and the head of the mainland affairs council were replaced. Uh, the premier, the new premier, came along last year, if I remember right. So these are all fairly recent hires. I wouldn't expect them to be changing quite so soon. And uh, what about? Do you think this will affect the election or not? No, I don't. I don't think people vote um, at the city and county level based on who's running some particular ministry unless they're doing a really horrible job or or they're going out on the streets and shaking their pom-poms and being a cheerleader for something. If they're really visible in a good way, they might sway a few votes. If they're really screwing up in a bad way, then they might put off a few voters. I think that's absolutely right. It's It's a move aimed at showing that there's an attempt to turn over a new leaf. But beyond that, I'm not sure people really vote based on that. And talking of the election again, but not in a cabinet reshuffle way, well, it's only months away, but there's been renewed concern within the DPP and Taiwan as a whole about an increase in cyber attacks and fake news ahead of the ballot. Now, the DPP, well, it's said it is anticipating that Taiwan could become a global hotspot for cyber attacks and fake news in the run-up to both the local elections in November and continuing until the 2020 presidential elections. Now, there have also been claims that DPP lawmakers are already 
being targeted by online trolls and fake news campaigns. And of course the DPP's official website was hacked the other week and that attack is believed to have come from China. Now although, you know, cyber investigation companies are rather coy about where most of these attacks come from, the other side of the Taiwan Strait is of course the main culprit or the accused main culprit 99.9% of the time, Brian. Um, that's absolutely right. Uh, the website was defaced, uh, with mockingly saying that Chinese netizens support Tsai Ing-wen and is in simplified characters. So that does seem to point to China. And these kind of attacks have happened before. Uh, I think they will continue to happen in the future as a way of intimidation. Sometimes you can't tell, though, really, sometimes if they're coming from the government, uh, from patriotic netizens, or some combination. Um, sometimes the line blurs in China. Um, but I think it is. it does point to how the DPP does need to improve on this front, that this happened. As for election interference, it's harder to say whether that will actually happen. Um, there's global concern now about election interference after uh, what's going on in America with Russia and so forth. Um, and it is, but I think one has to remember China has attempted to interfere in elections before, and it, through military means, uh, military exercises, intimidation, uh, statements by spokespersons. It doesn't always have to occur through technological means, but now in the present world, perhaps this will be a new layer to this. Yeah, Chinese hacking of uh, offshore overseas websites is nothing new at all. And as Brian pointed out, you never know if it's official or if it's uh, patriotic netizens or something else. And it's one of those things where you can ask the government in Beijing and they can say, oh, it wasn't us, and you don't really have any proof that it was. So it, it's easy for them to do it if, it's, if they're the ones doing it. Uh, I think the sad part is that the, the Thai government has done a lot to use the Internet in, in, in favor of outreach to citizens. We have a digital minister and some other projects. Um, there's a lot of new funding for startups, many of which are active in Internet technology. So it would be sad and ironic if that openness and experimentation were corrupted by hacking from China. I think that's right. Um, what is interesting is that the Simon does have this very strong push towards developing digital technologies, but I think that is often on the civilian front. Um, with regards to security technology and so forth, there's still the concern about China and um, yeah, I, I do wonder what steps the Time Mission will, will take to counteract this. Um, so far, I'm not so sure. I mean, do you think that maybe the Taiwan public are a bit more savvy towards what they're reading on the internet or not? It's hard to say. Um, you do have concern about, particularly the elderly, uh, believing these rumors that spread through line, um, for example, regarding, let's say, same-sex marriage or the banning of burning incense or these kind of rumors. There's concern about fake news all around the world. Um, particularly, I think, after the Sunflower Movement, in which young people were mobilized by social media, uh, that is seen as a positive development, but at the same time, then, that raises the concerns from the government that what if the public is so easily to take to the streets because of things they read on the internet in maybe a false way? And you know, I think it's interesting that with the Thai administration, which rode to power on the wave of the social movement afterwards, it's also concerned about this happening from the right and the Pan Blue camp. Yeah, I would wonder if some of this fake news, if it's really, if it's fake and influential, then we might see something like that toilet paper price increase scandal <laughs> that came up back in February and March. <clears throat> and some of that was, some elements of the story were true and some were not. Hmm. But it certainly motivated everybody to go out to the stores and buy a lot of toilet paper, and it was hard to find any if you needed it. Um, so if it's, if it's that kind of thing, and as you mentioned, the elderly might be swayed by things they see in their line groups, um, we would see a real impact. Until then, I would venture to say, Gavin, you're right, that people won't be terribly swayed by this. They're a little more savvy than we, 
may give them credit for. Um, but once in a while, something may escape into the general population and they may act on it. I think the, the real question is uh, a lot of questions are raised after the New Party scandal with regards to New Party members that were involved in Chinese spying efforts because their operation was really inefficiently run. China was paying them money for, just for Facebook likes, but they weren't getting a lot. Uh, surprising that a, a site with that much resources only had about like 6,000 likes on Facebook, um, maybe 7,000. Yet perhaps just something like that is just disguised for more serious Chinese efforts. I think hacking of a DPP website doesn't necessarily mean that they got into the DPP's information. Um, and this is a show of intimidation, but perhaps more dangerous is fake news. And if it is actually occurring, then where is it happening? Um, if they're actually good at it, then we can't see it. And what could we see it the other way around? Could could the KMT's website, could the KMT's policies be hacked? They actually, the hackers did uh, claim, I think, if I recall correctly, that the, the KMT's website would be next. Uh, it's actually very interesting because that points to the disconnect between the KMT and China sometimes, particularly netizens, that Chinese netizens perceive the KMT as having failed in winning Taiwan over and blaming it, uh, and even sometimes interpreting the KMT as too pro-independence for their takes, which is which is quite odd um, consideration of domestic politics in Taiwan. But I think a lot of the intricacies are lost on Chinese netizens who are trying to understand this from afar. I, I agree with that. And if you read Chinese textbooks, if you grew up there and you read the, the literature you get in middle school and high school, the KMT is a very, very reviled party and it goes back you know for decades because of the civil war so you grew up there and you, you think that the kmt is is the height of all evil mm. it, is, it is interesting because then the, the kmt is perceived as a Taiwanese independence force as well <laughs> which is of course ironic Anyway, we must move on, and the National Development Council's Deputy Minister Cho Jun Rong has left, well, he's left office, and he left office rather red-faced this week after he was found to have allegedly taken photographs of a woman's legs with his mobile phone on an MRT station in Taipei. Now, Cho issued an apology over the incident, but that only came after he had previously said that it was a mistake and claimed that he accidentally took the photographs of a view of the woman's back while he was trying to make a call to one of his friends on his said mobile phone. Now, the incident occurred at the Shimon MRT station, and Joe says that he immediately deleted the photographs and apologised to the woman personally. However, police say the woman did report the incident to them, and they reviewed closed-circuit television footage from the MRT station, and they, well, they could technically, legally actually question Joe, and he could actually face charges. Now, of course, while this happened, he deleted his photos, and of course, we're not going to see the closed circuit footage from the MRT station, photographs of Cho holding his telephone did surface on the trusty interweb. So obviously he was a minister, Brian. Obviously we don't know whether he did it or not, but I mean, not something to be caught or even hinted or even alleged that you did, I would have thought. Um, not at all, yeah. I think uh, that is that is definitely the case. And so that, that, is, that explains why this has become a scandal that has led to a resignation. Um, and it's disappointing to see a, a government official at such a high level do such juvenile behavior, but this is far from the first incident. Um, Taiwanese politicians have been implicated in sex scandals many, many, many times um, at all sorts of levels, from local to national. Um, and so it is positive that this was reported, that this woman did take action and is uh, did go to the police, because I think issues of sexual harassment occur in public places in Taiwan, particularly on public transport, and they are just often not reported. Um, there is the kind of system in place to respond to um, you know, sexual harassment on buses, for example, or subways, but I, I, I don't hear about it being used so often, although that does happen periodically. 
um, I think there's a major major uh, problem in Taiwan that sexual harassment is underreported. So that that action takes place. Hopefully, it can be an example. I think for society. I would agree. It's a it's a very nicely it's a case very nicely closed. I think the woman did the right thing, and not only sexual harassment cases, but a lot of other crimes and suspected crimes and incidents are not reported for a long list of perhaps cultural and legal reasons. Here, um, the fact has happened to a government official. You know, government people are like everybody else. Some of them can't control themselves uh, when they should. So this guy got caught, and um, sounds to me like the story is uh, is closed unless. The, uh, the suspect is going to take it up in court. Um, what about you mentioned people not reporting sexual harassment. Do you think this is because of the judges are considered dinosaurs, of course, with the way they rule in some sexual harassment cases? I think so. I think also just the legal system is viewed as unfriendly. Uh, I think also it does go back to cultural attitudes that if you talk about this, these issues such as these, uh, sometimes you're expected to swept it, uh, sweep it under the table. Uh, there are also cases of the police not being too interested in taking action or uh, calling on people to settle it on their own. Um, sometimes there's a lack of sensitivity, and I think that operates on multiple levels. Um, yeah. what, is, what is interesting is I think in this time that uh, the other netizens or other uh, you know citizens on the subway took photos and responded. I mean, we live in an increasingly digital age in which you know you have smartphones that people may try to take uh, photos. Infringing on people's privacy, but at the same time, you have other people around that will take notice of this and post it on the internet, and it's harder to kind of get away from this. Uh, security cameras miss so many things because they uh, usually are attached to a roof or a wall, and people at the ground level sometimes are the people that can take action. Um, sometimes it can be dangerous, leading to internet witch hunts and so forth. But this seems to be a positive example of where someone was called accountability. Yeah, I think the um, it's not only sexual harassment, but a lot of other cases are viewed locally within Taiwan as being just troublesome to try to bring to the attention of the police. It could be the police ask you to settle on your own. Uh, they don't have time to go chase it. They say they will, but they don't. Um, or I think you have some people, especially older people, who are afraid of retaliation, uh, either from the, their, um, the other party in the, in the incident or from somebody in between who's trying to settle the case. There's, just, there's a lack of awareness of that they have certain rights and they should be protected, and a, a definite fear that whatever they do will be highly troublesome on their part with very few results in the end. Mm. And of course, it also brings up the, the question of privacy. Mm. I mean, so I, if someone takes a photograph of you on the MRT, mm. are they invading your privacy when they do so? Mm. I think that's also a question. Um, I think uh, particularly because we have a, a news culture in Taiwan that is often quite sensationalist and uh, particularly the Apple Daily is prone to just going around and taking photos from people, particularly Facebook pages, and using this as part of sensationalist news reporting. Um, that raises also concerns because I think that perhaps while this, uh, the fact that cameras and making photos easily publicly available is something technology can do today, it also it can go overboard. Um, it can become also invading on people's privacies rather than holding, for example, government officials uh, up to accountability or calling for transparency and, uh, or to answer for or wrongdoings. I should think the privacy matter would be up to whoever's in charge of the property. If it's in the MRT system, it should be the company that runs the MRT or the operators of the individual stations. Uh, if they say no photos in certain places of certain people, then those are the rules that need to be followed, and the operator owner should be enforcing those rules. If it's out in public, I think the kind of the wild camera, the the the, uh, the snipers with their cameras out on the streets have more rights because it's simply public, 
and when you go out there as a as a pedestrian or whatnot, then you also subject yourself to being to being seen and perhaps photographed. I think Taiwan is quite interesting in this regard because of the high Facebook usage and high smartphone usage in as a technological society. The, the, a lot of these ethical questions are really coming up now because sometimes whatever you do, even if you think that it's not going to be taking a photo of it, just appears now on the internet and spreads and becomes viral, and unexpectedly will become targets of sometimes witch hunts based on. Uh, incorrect information or partial information, which I think is what was what the uh, minister in question here tried to leverage on, yet um, that didn't work out this time. But I think it is it is uh, there's still also issues I think with uh, particularly subways with regards to uh, people that try to take photos in, in bathrooms and that kind of thing. Um, you still see the signs everywhere, and and despite the fact that these signs are are out there, I'm not sure I always see action being taken by maybe MRT people running the MRT. It still is still a social problem, I think. And before we go this week, the National Land Surveying and Mapping Centre has remeasured Jade Mountain, and officially restated that its height is three thousand nine hundred and fifty-two point four three meters, with a margin of error of plus or minus four point five centimeters. Now, the Yushan National Park headquarters said the latest measurement was calculated using the most modern technology available, and the survey team visited the mountain on multiple occasions from between 2016 and 2017. To take the readings. Now the centre used different techniques such as levelling, satellite positioning, and gravity surveying to ensure that the measurement was as accurate as possible. Now the official height of Jade Mountain was previously recorded at three thousand nine hundred and fifty-two. Dead meters. Now the mountain measured three thousand nine hundred and forty-five meters in nineteen o four. It got a bit bigger in 1909, and it got even bigger in 1925. But it was at its height—no pun intended—in 1957, when the U.S. military recorded the height of the mountain at 3,997 meters, which Bryan means the mountain shrunk since 1957. <laughs> Seems like it.、Um, mountains sometimes do grow. I think I recall reading that Everest's reading had increased, and I think.、Um... It might have actually been the mountain did physically increase in size and not just a change in measurement. At the same time, mountains also shrink.、Um, I'm afraid I don't know enough about ge- geology to really、uh, speak to that. But、um, I think it's a matter of natural pride for Taiwan, just having a tall mountain. It's、uh, one of those things. It's claimed、uh, to be the tallest mountain in Northeast Asia, if I recall. It is, but of course, it, it was last measured in 2003 when it measured 3,951.798 meters. Now, of course, it now measures 3,952.43 meters. So, anyone, Ralph, who's been up Jade Mountain, might have to go up there again to actually get to the top. So, yeah, to speak. you might have to kick a rock off the top so that it comes down again. That's probably what it is. <laughs> Have you climbed up Jade Mountain, Ralph? No, I bicycle over the、uh, the road, the highest road elevation, which is of course nowhere near as high as like twenty six hundred meters. I have never climbed up to the top. Right.、And、would you do it now? Now it's now it's now it's got a new、now、new height, a new、yeah. height, a new official height, Ralph. Would you do it? I would. Yeah. Why not? I'm there. Brian, would you be walking up Jade Mountain at its new official height? If I was a mountain climber, I would. I think I'm more likely to end up just,、uh, you know, you know, similar to how there are、uh, dead bodies on Everest that hikers climb by on the way to the top as landmarks. I'd probably end up on that as on Jade Mountain. <laughs> well, that would increase the height. That's true. That would be cheating, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's true. Only by like. Less than two meters, though. <laughs> anyway, we'll leave it there with the new height for Jade Mountain this week here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh 
Thanks for having me. Good night. And on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks for having me, Gavin. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.